Welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is by public service leaders for current and future public service leaders. If you would like to hear what the ministers and politicians are thinking, then there are numerous other podcasts where you can tune in to find out what their latest thoughts are. This podcast is about the inspirational people designing and leading frontline public services. This is about the people who do the real work. On the podcast, you'll hear from leaders from councils, from within the NHS and other public services, and also those involved in policy development. I particularly try and find people who have interesting stories to tell and have achieved really difficult things in challenging circumstances and who have learned lessons along the way and uh, who are, are keen to share those lessons with others. Because as I think as we all know, public service leaders are not prone to shout about their achievements, but um, it is really important, especially now with so much pressure on public services, that those leaders do share the lessons that they have learned about what works and what indeed does not work. So I hope you enjoy it and don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And indeed, you might want to catch up on some of the previous episodes. Hello there. This episode is with Mel Pickup. Mel is the Chief Executive of the Bradford Teaching Hospitals Trust. Those who are regular listeners will remember that I've spoken to Rob Webster, who is the Chief Executive Lead of the West Yorkshire and Harrogate Integrated Care System. Now, Mel's hospital is part of that system, but the really interesting part of Mel's job is that she is also the lead for the Bradford District and Craven Integrated Care Partnership, which is one of the place-based partnerships that exists within that wider ICS. The place-based partnership covers everything to do with health and well-being. It covers acute services, it covers mental and community healthcare services, it includes council services like adult social care, and it also includes third and independent sector. Mel and I talk about the changing nature of acute care and some of the really important cultural and operational changes which are taking place. And these are driven by a number of things. The NHS Ford View, uh, some of the important contractual changes, but it's essentially meant that acute services are now able and incentivized to behave in a much more collaborative way than they perhaps were in the past. When you listen to Mel speak, she doesn't talk about the acute hospital trust as a single entity at all. She only talks about the wider system and how they're all working in partnership. And I think that's a real step change. So with no further ado, let's hear from Mel. Mel, a huge welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. Um, I have to say after over 20 episodes, this is the first time I've had a conversation with an acute trust chief executive. So it's, it is certainly high time that I did that. And I'm really grateful to you for making the time. So um, it'd be great just to start by saying a little bit about who you are. Great, that's not a problem. I can do that. So I'm, I'm Mel Pickup and I'm Chief Executive of Bradford Teaching Hospitals. And in addition to what you may call my day job of running the hospital, I'm also the place lead for Bradford and District. Um, now that's a kind of a, an add-on 
to the job that I do within the acute trust, but it's an important add-on because I think it gives a real sort of signal of intent on the part of this organisation to play not just a, an active part, but a real leadership part yeah. in the development of something very different in the way that we deliver um, and develop health and social yeah. care. Yeah, and I definitely want to ask you about the Place-Based Partnership Act as one in a lot more detail. But before yeah. I do, just to, to hear a, a little bit more uh, about yourself. So have you always been in the NHS or did you do other things previously? No, no I've always always really been in the health service uh, from the time I sort of started full-time employment and trained originally as a, a student nurse and then became a, a registered nurse. So worked clinically for a number of years. Always enjoyed, really, increasingly so as my career advanced uh, and I got promoted into leadership positions. The the challenges, really, of developing high-class services and improving patient experience and leading teams of clinicians. So became a ward yeah. system quite early in, in my clinical career and then um, moved into more general management and professional nursing roles and ultimately found myself as a director of nursing on a, a board of an acute trust. And, and once there really expanded that brief into uh, operational management and then ultimately a combination of director of nursing or what would be called now chief nurse director of operations or chief operating officer and deputy chief exec which was at that point then seemed a natural precursor to well surely now I should be looking at becoming a chief exec in my own right which I did and and so I'm now in my 15th year I think as a as a chief exec. Yeah I think that's really interesting actually because there was a bit of a view at one point that there was almost like a management class within the NHS who'd never been on the front line, didn't know anything about that. And actually, you're you're one of a number of chief execs working in healthcare who has a clinical background, who has a nursing background or, or a medical background. And I think that can only be a good thing. I think the role of a chief exec does attract a sort of increasingly now a broad church of people with different experiences. And one might argue... Uh, looking at the, the cadre of chief execs we've got in the NHS, probably not broad enough in terms of the cultural diversity and the gender mix and and all that. But certainly people, when I first came into a career in the NHS, who had come through that shop floor to board, if you like, clinical route, were fewer and far between. Yeah. Um, and I think I think it's, uh, and I would say this, but I, I do think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing because it brings a different perspective to the conversations that you have a, as a board. And, and you know, the part of the what makes boards work and be effective is having a range of experiences represented within those yeah. conversations, including, uh, of course, non-execs from a, a wide variety of different backgrounds. Yes. Um, so the, the main topic of our conversation today is the Bradford District and Creative and Place-Based Partnership, which is called Act as One. So yes. for those who maybe don't know, place-based partnerships are 
groupings of providers that exist at a smaller geographical footprint than integrated care systems usually and involve providers from the NHS, councils and also the voluntary sector coming together to collaborate in a way that makes sense to serve those populations. So how did the Act as One partnership come about? The premise on which the partnership first came together was that if we began to integrate more from the perspective of uh, commissioners and providers from a variety of different sectors, then surely we would overcome some of the problems that uh, the people whom we serve, our population experience, when they are trying to access care. So typically the fragmentation that used to exist, uh, and to some extent still does, I guess, in relation to community services, uh, mental health services, acute services, primary care services, might better be served by all of those individuals coming together with the patient and their needs or the, the population and their needs at their core and then trying to operate um, as a sort of a single entity so that the experience is less fragmented and there is less duplication and we share information about the people whom we serve on a more regular basis and we work in a much more joined up way. Um, yeah. And hopefully, by virtue of that, the quality of the service is improved. The experience that the patients and the population receive is improved. And actually, we do it in a more cost effective way as well. I mean, I think for some people listening, that that will seem really sensible and in some ways a really obvious way to do things. So is this is this latest development in terms of place based partnerships? Does this feel very different to you than than other reform attempts which have gone before? Yeah, very different. I mean, I think it's a real sort of seed change in the sense that in the 15 years I've been sort of leading an organisation. Right at the beginning of that was the concept of organisations striving to become foundation trusts, mm. which were, I guess in essence, had the bedrock, the idea that you could run an organisation on sort of semi-commercial lines in a way. Yes. Um, and one that encouraged organisations to succeed, even if that meant it's success came at the expense of another part of the system because it was all about accruing money for reinvestment in services and uh, really emphasising the purchase of provider split that existed between the commissioning function in the NHS and the provision function. It didn't encourage cooperation and collaboration, certainly not between providers because essentially providers could have been seen as competitors uh, because your success was dependent on attracting activity to you. And so the idea as a secondary care organisation that um, you got paid by results and that was the financial regime, you know, you had a very strong contractual base, you were paid by the unit of activity you delivered. You could see that within that there was 
the potential for the perverse incentive to encourage more activity to come into hospitals. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about about that, Mel, actually, the the term payment by results. I mean, it wasn't accurately describing what was happening, really, because it was payment by activity, which I think is the point that you're making. Yeah, and and the idea that that organisations would somehow be better off and be viewed as more successful the more work they did was not necessarily a positive, never had a positive impact on other parts of the system. For a hospital, that just sounds a ridiculous aim. I mean, you want to get people out of hospital. Yeah, absolutely. And and ideally, you know, the way that we think now and the way that I think and encourage my organisation is that we don't want people to come into hospital at all. You know, yeah. that, that the fact that people have to resort to come into hospital, and of course you always want a hospital to be there for accidents and emergencies, and and, uh, and that's right and proper, and, and uh, you would want to assure your population that it's there, but for other things that are a consequence of potentially chronic diseases or lifestyle choices or things that are uh, a manifestation of health inequalities in another part of a person's life. If you can uh, aim to reduce those such that people become less ill, less frequently, then that's a great thing to do. It's a, it's a different kind of mindset if you're in yes. a keep exec to get your head around and to get your organization's head around in trying to give that message that all of us have a role to play in keeping people out of hospital and when they come into hospital getting them out of hospital and back to their homes to live healthier lives um, as as we can. Yeah, Um, I'm going to ask you a little bit about that internal culture change later on. But just to to go back to the partnership itself. So how are decisions made? Is there a board? Is there a governance structure? And does everybody, councils, the voluntary sector, have a seat around the table? So, of course, we're in the in the throes of legislative change that will mean that in April 2022, ICS has become uh, much more formal bodies with new powers uh, and new responsibilities. And so to do the places which make up those integrated care systems. And so you would expect and want and need for there to be governance arrangements for decision making and the delegation of that decision-making to that collective of people, as opposed to the individual constituent parts of that place. So um, whilst we all sit with our day hats on as leaders of our respective organisations, increasingly the decisions that we made are taken, even though they may need to go through our formal independent governance route for the sovereignty of our organisations as a collective. And we have to put governance in place to enable that to happen. So whether that's through a memorandum of understanding or the formulation of a subcommittee or a joint committee, or in our case, we have a strategic partnership agreement that binds us all to behave collaboratively in an integrated way for the, the aggregate success of our place-based system. Yeah, part of my, my day job involves 
trying to work out some of those arrangements and they can be complicated to get over the line but once they are agreed it's incredible what can be achieved so thinking about the past 18 months which have obviously been ferociously difficult particularly for those working in in the health sector would you say that the partnership or the emerging partnership has made responding to the pandemic easier than it would otherwise have been I think it absolutely has, yeah. And, and you know, the partnership, uh, I only came to this particular place not that many months before the pandemic began, really, in November right. 2019. The partnership existed and had existed for a number of years up to that point. But, but it really, um, it, it really sort of catalyzed our sense of we are all in this together. If we work together, we will be stronger. We need to support one another. We're, um, you know, the, the stronger together mantra, if you like, really resonated. And as a newcomer to this place, what the pandemic did was really short circuit a lot of the relationship building that might otherwise have needed to take place on, from my perspective, as a, as a newcomer to, to Bradford, because we saw each other not person, but we saw each other practically every day in some form of communication or conversation about how we as a, as a place were responding to the needs of our population and our collective staff. Um, you know, the, the workforce in particular needed a lot of support and um, whether that was through thinking of how we as an acute trust could provide help and support and advice to nursing homes and residential homes in relation to infection control and the use of personal protective equipment and even sourcing, accessing and sharing personal protective equipment when that was in short supply um, right at the beginning of the pandemic. Our kind of collective response to uh, establishing vaccination hubs and pop-up vaccination hubs, you know, in shopping centre or in the college or uh, agreeing a memorandum of understanding that enabled the transfer of our staff from our own individual organisations to operate in one of our collective endeavours. Yeah. So, you know, that that traditionally has always been fraught with you know, the contracts here and the terms and conditions here and inductions and various other things. Well, it did away with all that uh, and allowed our staff to go where the greatest need was at that particular time. And does everything you're describing there, does that involve linking up with local charities and social enterprises as well? Yep. So our, our partnership is our, for, for Bradford District and Creighton, is our, our three key NHS providers in the sense of the Mental Health uh, and Community Trust, Airedale Hospital and Bradford Teaching Hospital. Then, of course, all our primary care colleagues, practices, primary care networks, um, community partnerships, voluntary sector, our independent sector, uh, represented this in residential homes, the local authority, the faith sector. We would have regular meetings as a what we call the, the outbreak board, 
yeah. which brought together, you know, the the police, fire, education, and um, the Chamber of Commerce. Even, you know, how could we all collectively respond to whatever it was that was the pressing issue of the day? Yeah, and just in terms of this new approach. For acute trusts, so usually acute trusts are the largest player in any health and care system, and they're often viewed as a threat by other partners. How, how do you manage that uh, view that others might have, and how do you build trust with other partners? I mean, the biggest the biggest way that you can build trust in that scenario is actions speaking louder than words. So, if you kind of acknowledge that that is the sort of default position that others within the system may have with a great deal of legitimacy probably on the on the basis that um you know as i previously alluded to that purchaser provider split payment by results all those kinds of things were drivers that that made other parts of the system if you were an arabic acute trust a little bit suspicious and skeptical of some of your motives sometimes uh, around why you want to do uh, certain things, uh, but that was an old that was an old world. You know, we we do not have the same contractual basis now for our relationships, and it isn't the case that the more work that we do, the more that we get paid to to do that work. It just isn't that the case. We have to um, view ourselves. And I was listening to a colleague recently on a on a call about this, who who is in a similar position to myself as an acutus lead, uh, and also a, a a place based lead, and and they talked about transparency and being humble, and being a supportive partner, and uh, and reaching out to others that could require the help. Because the thing about being an acutus chief exec is you have a lot of people within your teams and uh, a good infrastructure to support the work that you do. Whereas if I'm, you know, if I'm working with my colleague who is representing residential and and, uh, the nursing home sector, the independent sector, um, there is very little infrastructure to support the REES. And therefore, if I can provide some of that by virtue of some of my team helping to do some stuff for her then I think that's what we should be doing to demonstrate that we are a good partner you know and we will go out of our way to to live that ethos of partnership and integration and it's not about competing at all it's actually about looking out there and recognizing that there are people much better placed with a, a a much better grasp of what's happening at a very grassroots level within our communities, for example, yeah. um, and faith leaders uh, who we, we should interact with and connect with and work much more productively with. I think yeah. part, of the, part of the thing that there's a kind of a historically perhaps a bit of an arrogance or a perception of arrogance of cute trusts in relation to what happens in 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 places and and I don't think that that can be entertained I don't think it's real it doesn't feel real to me and I hope you know, the way that we are working in Bradford people would you know say that that that, that is true yeah this current reform of the NHS has been in train for 
gosh, I don't know, was it five years with um, STPs at the start and then finally developing into integrated care systems? I mean, from what you're saying, it sounds like that contractual change, removing that, let's call it payment by activity incentive, might be the single most important thing that, that, that actually makes this more than just a structural reorganisation, because like, that, that's a real behaviour driver. I think it is, but I think it's also, uh, for, for me, when Sir Simon Stevens became the, the lead for, for the NHS and published the, the five-year forward view, I think that was equally a real sort of turning point for me personally as a, a leader within the, the NHS, because I could see within that um, for the first time, really talking about parity of mental health, for example, talking yes. about um, integration and working together and collaboration and really pushing in a different direction as opposed to, um, you know, getting your head down and just meeting targets and uh, managing the money and achieving things in a very sort of contractual and mechanistic way. Um, yeah. So, so I think um, I think that really was quite. I personally felt when I read it uh, and uh, said as much to Simon, uh, uh, an opportunity I had to say it was quite liberating and permissive. Yeah. And uh, so that coupled with the change in the financial regimes and the fact that a big driver of this was austerity, really, because you you, you can't really operate. And it wasn't Sir Simon, it was Sir David Nicholson who used to say, we cannot have islands of success in, in a sea of failures. So we, we couldn't have one or two big organisations flourishing at the expense of commissioners and other providers, because all that would serve to do is disadvantage the populations that those organisations served. Yes, so, yes. And how do you lead the internal culture change within the trust from one of, as you say, operating in a competitive environment to one of collaboration? It doesn't happen quickly because this is, you know, it's taken a long time for these behaviours that have sort of embedded really culturally to be un unlearned. So if people have been working in that way for a long time, then to unlearn that, We'll take time as well and we'll take encouragement and we'll take a lot of explanation as to why it's not the way we operate anymore. And in an organisation, uh, you know, we're a reasonably sized uh, teaching hospital, six, six and a half thousand people, um, getting that message down to every level within the organisation does take a lot of time. But, but if we can do that by communicating, giving people at all levels of the organisation the opportunity to get involved in things that are happening as under the banner of Actors One. Um, yeah. So we have, you know, I've, I've got lots of my middle management colleagues now coming out in to do what traditionally might have been a secondment to act as one, but because we're we're not doing that transactional HR thing anymore, they kind of come out of their day job and we give them the opportunity to get the exposure to working at a place-based level with colleagues across all the different sectors. And that's adding a new dimension to their understanding and experiences of what really impacts on the health of our people. 
um, yes. not just that tiny little bit that they would have seen if they'd have sat in splendid isolation in Bradford teaching hospitals. I think that's incredibly interesting. I've Just before we recorded this, I was chairing a webinar that was about actually building bridges between central government and local councils. And the points that were made there were almost exactly the same in that in order for councils and central government to work better with each other, the officers in each have to have a better understanding of each other and in a best case scenario, spend time working in in the opposite camp, if you like. And it sounds like you're saying something exactly the same there. So, so I chair, um, I chair a board called the Health and Care Partnership Board for Bradford and District. And it probably has 20, 23, 24 people on. And they come from every sector. And, you know, we talk about our priorities and objectives as our act as one program and way of working. And that could be about a new, the development of a new long COVID service that we're doing as a, as a, an integrated place. So everything yeah. from involved voluntary services, community partnerships, right up to intensive psychological support that we might be providing as a as a teaching trust. Or it could be about our plans to create um, a centralised digital command centre that enables us to look at uh, the capacity, the health and social care capacity across the whole of the place, not just by individual organisation, so that we have this this dashboard of where our people are and where the capacity is and and that's all work in progress and they're great projects but we traditionally would have a conversation in July about whether or not we would have a meeting in August because you know August is not a great time usually yes holidays and things so instead of having that conversation at the July board I set a challenge to every member of that board to say look If you were coming to an August meeting, you'd probably, there'd be a couple of hours that you set aside. Could I ask you that, that take that couple of hours and add to it another couple of hours that you volunteer, volunteer to give? And instead of us just in the abstract, in this virtual meeting room, talking about the inequalities that our population experience, I want you to go and spend a morning or an afternoon working alongside one of our voluntary agencies or our community agencies. And when we reconvene in um, September, we'll have a conversation about what we found. You know, is it as we thought it might be and what can we do differently and better? So we've uh, I kind of threw that gauntlet down to say, go out there, 25 people, spend a morning with our communities trying to understand what it is in real life that we talk about around these board meetings um and so i i've done mine i went to um in churches in bradford which provides discounted food and a savings plan and art classes for a really deprived part of our community and lots of other things and i'm hoping that when we reconvene in september Lots of other members of the group will have done something very similar. Yeah, that sounds fantastic, actually. Um, Just coming back to the culture question again, which I know is exactly what you you were talking about there. But when we last spoke, you talked about 
having a, a mantra of healthy, or sorry, happy, healthy, and at home. And uh, I think as you would have acknowledged earlier in the old world that would have seemed counterintuitive because why why do we want people at home but is having a, a mantra like that is that helpful when trying to reach out to the six and a half thousand people in your organization to to really hammer home that this is a new approach i think a common language is always very helpful because it's not just the six and a half thousand people in my organization it's probably um, you know, the 20,000 plus people working across the whole of health and social care. And if we can all identify with something that is a very clear objective to keep people healthy, to keep them happy and to keep them at home, you know, living independently, that's really, really powerful. Um, so what it means for, for the, the staff who work in my organisation is, is really taking every opportunity where we interact with the patient and their families to understand is there anything else that we can do to help and support them to to achieve the object, that objective, i.e. of not coming into hospital again. So we can, if it's a very clear sort of episodic illness that has brought them to hospital that requires an intervention and they may never come again, that's one thing, that's fine. But at the same time, um, is there some degree of curiosity that we can approach the uh, the interaction with that individual in a different way to understand, you know, what's happening at home, what's happening in the wider networks that are families? Um, uh, are there any concerns? Are there any modifications that not just we could do because it's really hard if you work in an acute trust sometimes to think, well, we're an acute trust, what can we do? But if we're working as a part of a very cohesive system, it may not be that we can do anything or, or need to do anything. We might just need to talk to somebody who can. Yes, so indeed. It, it, it's that whole person thing. Yes. So, Mel, when I've heard you speak before, you've been very clear that reducing health inequalities is one of your priorities and one of the priorities for both Act as One and also the entire West Yorkshire and Harrogate ICS. Can you explain the challenges that you're facing with regard to inequalities and what can be done about it? So Bradford District in Craven is a is a really interesting uh, place. You know, the population that lives there reside in some of the wealthiest areas of um, the country and at the same time, some of the poorest areas in the country. So 266,000 people who live in our patch live in the poorest 10% of the country in terms of right. the effects of multiple deprivation. Um, nearly one third of all our children live in poverty. The, we, we have illustratively, we have a, a, a slide that we often uh, use that, that describes a bus journey. And that bus journey is one from Wharfdale into Manningham in the inner city in Bradford. And whilst it represents a journey of probably less than 10 miles, in terms of the healthy life expectancy of everybody who lives along that bus route, it represents 20 years difference. Wow. 20 wow. years difference. So, 
So you can expect to live into your 80s, well into your 80s healthily in Wharfdale and only into your 50s uh, and 60s in Manningham in uh, in a city Bradford. And so we use that because it represents um, the diversity of the people that we serve. And that's not to say that that um, living in, in more rural areas doesn't have its other challenges, because it really does. Um, and rurality does bring different challenges. So, so we have to be really cognizant of the geography that we cover and the populations and the communities that we cover. But those individuals who live um, the, the least number of healthy years are four times more likely to suffer from diabetes, four times more likely to suffer from heart disease, from cancers um, and, and early death. And so there must be something that we can do to reduce that. And that will take a very long time because it's you know, multifactorial. It's about education. It's about housing. It's about COVID, for example has really, in some of those areas, hit those areas really hard because um, of our multi-generational housing, um, with whole families being exposed in some instances to COVID. We've got such a massive cultural diversity as well uh, across our patch. And, um, you know, one third of our population is under 20. So if 30, about 35% of our population in Bradford comes from a BAME background, amongst the younger members of our population, that increases to about 50%. So there are some cultural challenges as well in the way that uh, COVID has impacted on not just one or two individuals, but whole families in some instances. So do, do you have to, or will you have to, actively prioritise certain areas for support, particularly as the NHS backlog is cleared and things like that? I think the answer to that is yes, and that's a difficult one, I think. For, yeah. um, you know, my colleagues in local government would, would, would say that they're, you know, they're very well versed in looking at the needs of the whole of their population and prioritising those in greatest need. But we have an NHS constitution that is pretty much a blanket constitution that says everybody will wait this long or will wait, uh, yeah. expect this. Uh, you know, and for, for years and years, it's been the case that we've battled the, the accusations of postcode lotteries and things like that. But I guess what we're talking about here is something very different because what we're, what we're thinking about here is that there are people who live in areas of greater need. So we have a programme of work under Act as One, which is reducing inequalities in communities, which are targeting some of our resources to provide more to those communities than you might expect to see in other communities, where you would argue that they need the need is less, yeah, um, or at least different. But you're right in that it's a difficult, it's a sort, it's a. I mean, it's a kind of an awkward conversation, isn't it? Because it's it makes perfect sense if you look at it dispassionately from a distance. But when it's your community, when you're making decisions about uh, where to prioritise the limited resources that the health service has, it 
It's difficult, but it's a really important conversation to have. And it's going to take brave leadership across the whole system if it's to work, because it's not just going to work if individual pockets are being brave. Everyone has to do it. Yeah. Yeah. You have to accept that in order to reduce inequalities, you have to give more to some people and less to others. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So um, I, I want to move on now just to talk about the integrated care system and how things work at that level. So your place based partnership that you've been referring to, that's at a sub ICS level. So what is your trust and involvement at that ICS level. So I think just for the avoidance of doubt, it's the West Yorkshire and Harrogate ICS that, that you're a part of. Yes. So so as far as trust involvement goes, we I guess we sit there with with two discrete hats on. One is as a member of Bradford District in Craven Place. So one of the one of the many organisations that make up that. And then the other is the sort of different dimension, which is the West Yorkshire Association of Acute Trusts, which is a provider collaborative of acute trusts. There are six acute trusts serving West Yorkshire and Harrogate, and we come together on a regular basis to to explore and uh, plan for and develop services that are better or resilient, uh, improved services delivered through uh, a collaborative way of working between acute providers as opposed to continuing to work alone. And so, what, what does that mean, just with a few practical examples of what a collaborative way of working means, um, as opposed to the days when you would have been in competition with each other? Um, so, so I think what we try to do across West Yorkshire is to maintain as many services in the discrete locations that we can and if that means that we have to do that by working together um, and having staff who uh, were originally employed in one organisation transferring to do some work in another organisation so a good example of that would be we recently uh, reconfigured our vascular services for the west of West Yorkshire which means that those are now consolidated and delivered out of Bradford Teaching Hospital. But we serve a population that includes those patients who ordinarily would go to Airedale Hospital or... Right, Airedale OK, Hospital. yeah. Oh, so, so it's really fundamental changes like that where, yeah, yeah. That, that is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so for those higher uh, specialty services where uh, you need a, a bigger critical mass of demand uh, and a pool, a bigger pool of expertise to maintain resilient services over a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week uh, period, then uh, not every hospital is able to do that. Um, so if we, if we work together, we can provide those services in one of our locations and still maintain outpatient services and daycare services and things like routine follow-up appointments and things like that in a more local, locally delivered service. But equally, um, we're working on uh, networked radiology solutions supported by digitalisation so that we can ensure that radiological images could be read 
by um, clinicians working in any part of West Yorkshire on behalf of a, another organisation. We have pathology joint ventures, which creates a much more resilient uh, and attractive offer, actually, to pathologists wanting to work in um, an area that has a larger number of colleagues where the intensity of on-call is not as acute um, and the opportunities are uh, for specialisation are greater. So th- there's any number of areas where increasingly we will find ourselves working much more closely together. Um, and uh, and that's good because it means that we can maintain the range of services as far as possible locally. But when when we need to, we can consolidate some services to make them high quality, resilient, robust services for the future. Makes a huge amount of sense, Mel. I really appreciate those examples. Um, just as a final question then, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or in a charity or social enterprise who wants to make an impact in the way that you're very clearly making an impact in, in your area? I think probably the biggest the biggest piece of advice, and somebody always somebody once advised me never to give advice, which is a bit ironic, but um, <laughs> would be um, do don't assume that you know. I was going to say everything, but anything in some in some instances. Be naturally inquisitive and always come to things from a point of view is of of not knowing very much about anything because that way you ask the right questions of the right people and you come come to a, a view about what's actually going on. Yeah. Um, and, and the more sort of soundings you take on that, probably the more informed uh, and balanced view you might make ultimately about what what is real and what's happening. As a leader in the NHS, is that has it always been safe to take that approach? Or have you felt in the past that it's important to act as though you've got the answers? I, I don't think I haven't personally. Uh, I don't believe ever come at it from from that that point. I had a very very influential person in my upbringing. It was my great grandmother, who was um, always very um, very good at, at giving um, giving a view about be, becoming too big for your boots and 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 that kind of thing. So so I I I don't really see it as a, a, a failing to say I'm not quite sure what's going on here. And yeah. that 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 sort of pertains just as much to if not more so but frankly to users of our services and the people who um complain because we haven't got it right and the people who have been harmed because we haven't got it right as it does to anybody else who has a view about what the right thing might be to do at any yeah. given time. So I, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't really phase me to, to come at that from that point of view. But you know how these things are, you, you kind of, you work with people who maybe were in the camp that you were describing over the years that, that kind of, uh, that hero, superhero leader who, yeah. who the answers and and have something in the back pocket to to pull out. I I I'm very pleased to say that we don't have any of those in our system, and I think I think that's a massive thing actually, um, because I think when you do have individuals like that, it, it kind of 
it creates uh, more individuals. Some of the people who behave like that prompt other people to behave like that too. Yes. So, so if you've got this critical mass of people who who work in a certain way and that behaviour, that superhero, know it all, everybody move out the way, I'm here now, you can all relax. That doesn't <laughs> happen. And or that desire to compete with one another in that way doesn't happen either. I'm not sure I'm making myself completely clear. Mel, Mel, you absolutely are. History is littered with disasters that have come about because of that sort of attitude. And I completely subscribe to it. And I think it's it's amazing to hear that that is that your style of leadership is becoming prevalent within the NHS, which traditionally, you know, it, it's a risky environment. It's uh, it's difficult to have doubts when you're dealing with people's lives, but you have to have that doubt. You have to have that curiosity or you may never get to the, the actual source of a problem. So I, I totally subscribe to that and I think you explained it really well. So Mel, all that's left for me to say is a huge Thank you for your time, and I've really enjoyed our discussion. Thank you. It was nice to meet you, Andrew. So I was really encouraged by that conversation, and it makes me believe that the current reforms that the NHS is going through are having a positive impact. And I know that some members of Parliament are struggling with these reforms, and uh, it's quite difficult to explain on the doorstep, as it were. But I really hope they speak to their local healthcare leaders and council leaders, in fact, because there is nobody I've spoken to on this podcast who is involved in these reforms that doesn't think that they're having a positive impact. And to be quite frank, without the reforms, uh, which have been going for five years, let's not forget, I don't think the response to the pandemic would have been as joined up or as collaborative. Acute trusts are used to being the dominant player in terms of healthcare provision. And it is wonderful to hear Mel talk about the importance of parity, of mental health, of the importance of working with councils, with the voluntary sector. And to hear Mel talk about encouraging her staff to be interested in a patient's wider life and the entirety of their well-being feels like a really important step change. A point I've been making recently is that whilst the government and the Prime Minister and other ministers are talking about levelling up, the NHS is talking about reducing health inequalities. And I think it's going to be really important that these two agendas, which are both largely pushing in the same direction, are joined up. Mel gave the really good example of, in her area, you can take a 10-mile bus journey and experience a 20-year difference in healthy life expectancy and that is what the NHS is really focused on and somehow we need to find a way of joining the ambition that the NHS has to reduce those health inequalities with the overarching government ambition about levelling up areas and a very important part of that which Mel discussed was can we accept that some areas that require more help will get more resources than areas that are doing a bit better. And that's going to be a very key part of this. And it's harder to do with healthcare services, with NHS funding, than it is with funding for physical infrastructure. So how this whole levelling up agenda plays out in reality on the ground is going to be very important. So that's everything for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. 
Don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter or register on the website to never miss a future episode.